Welcome back, streamers, to another another jam packed episode. Um, before before we jump into today's to today's content, I want to briefly mention that over on the site, whydoeswilhelmscream.com, as part of Black History Month, we're going to be focusing on a few films by Black filmmakers that premiered at Sundance this year. So up now, I didn't talk to Jason about this. He's fine with it though. Up now is a piece on the documentary Little Richard. I am everything, and coming soon will be write ups on All Dirt Roads Taste of Salt and Mammy Wata. So keep that in mind if you're so inclined. Awesome. Um, yeah. I'm looking forward to reading that. Oh. I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading the, uh, the Little Richard piece. I was interested in that. I, I kind of slept on Sundance this year just on the online piece and it was a little pricey. I, you know, I, what are your thoughts on that? I, I mean, not the, not the price point, but like the COVIDization of, of film festivals at this point and opening those up to a wider audience. I, Cause I don't think it's, I don't think it detracts from people going there. And, and I do think it would be very interesting for film buffs to be able to take in those movies without actually having to travel there and see them. I, I would really love to see like the bigger ones do this. I would love to see can do this. I would love to see TIFF, um, you know, the Toronto international do it. I just think it would open it up to a whole new audience and and really kind of, I don't know, just kind of cultivate that interest in those movies. You, you could also then see, obviously, you would get online buzz and, and, and you could then, I don't know, it just seemed like a, like a groundswell would help for a lot of these films, um, getting them out into the populace and to be able to be seen. And, and it's difficult to obviously do that if you have to travel to these places because obviously the cost is is prohibitive obviously just for travel and just for the event itself and it can be a daunting thing film festivals aren't easy to go to (laughs) unless you have done it a lot or if you have press credentials or things like that but like when i was in college south by southwest and it really wasn't there was no film portion of south it was very small but like you could just buy a wristband and i just bounced around nowadays it is an industry insider thing where you're not going to anything unless you're going to small venues if and, and even then you're still paying five six hundred bucks i paid like under a hundred dollars for like the week you know and then you could just go to any venue you wanted to go to as long as it wasn't sold out or, or booked maybe you should become a social media influencer i, I and really then you could then you could go do whatever you want i need to create some sort of ai persona for myself like a sexy something you know like a I don't know. Like I need a, I need sexy a sexy podcaster. Is that a uh, <laughs> Halloween costume? I think, I think, I'm sure it is. I think that's a well-worn. Um, I, I don't, I don't think there's any slots left for sexy podcaster. Oh, probably not. I need, I need some sort of uh, catch and I'm not sure exactly. I haven't really found my niche yet. You so. need a gimmick. <laughs> I do. Um, yeah. I, no, I, I wish, I think that it is a great idea that these festivals, the ones that are doing it are putting, are making things available online. Like you said, not everybody can get there. It opens up the films to people like us, too, who don't have a cachet built up yet to be like, hey, you know, right, I'm, I'm so-and-so, give me a press pass. So it gives us a chance to to do that, to write about them, to talk about them at the time. But also, yeah, it drums up interest. People know people know these film festivals, at least Sundance and the New York Film you know, Festival, Cannes, the Berlinale, I think, started today, um, Venice. I don't think there's any harm that could come from it. And I mean, especially places like Sundance. I mean, one of the things that they do that I I respect, even if it can be frustrating if you don't get the ticket you want, is that they limit the number of these things that are sold. So so that it does still have if these movies go into theaters later, there's still an audience for it. So they're not saturating that market with people who, who aren't going to then like see it in wide release or, right. yeah, or not wide release. I think the barrier to entry is is high enough that you're not going to get hundreds of thousands of people trying to buy these tickets to watch these films, especially yeah. when they don't know about them. And I really haven't seen a 
piracy detriment to these movies either. So these movies aren't showing up online. I mean, they're, they're and so whatever they're doing to protect them that way, that seems to be working. Yeah. And so it would be nice to be able to have a, a block of films, even if you had to specifically get get online at particular particular times to see the movies. And to be able to like, and, and, you know, and just enjoy them. But yeah, I mean, and they, you know, they have windows for these things. So, and once you start it, you only have so many hours to finish it. Mm-hmm. You've got, I think it was the 24th through the 29th of January. I had to watch four films. My schedule, not that I'm in demand or like that popular, <laughs> but my schedule is crowded enough where that was, that was tough. Right. But, but I mean, I also watch sometimes I think about dying, which is Jason's biopic. <laughs> I'm kidding with, with, but, it, but it starred da- Daisy Ridley. Um, and I forget the, the woman director's name. It was, it was good as well, but, I, but those were four films that I specifically like sought Purchased, out. Right, right? right. Those were the ones that I wanted to see. And some of the bigger films like Eileen, they didn't make available online anyway. Right. Um, right. And, and I read that book and I have thoughts on that. But actually, I wrote a review of that book for Slant Magazine back in the day. Um, if you're interested, before you go see the film, <laughs> we need like a little you can go check a, out my like review, a plug a ding or something, some sort of like soundboard thing that goes in there. Right. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, but I mean, yeah, but I, I enjoyed all four of the all four of the films. But these are the ones that I like I said, I I sought out specifically because of their scale, but also because of of, of the directors. And yeah, they're all three really great. Yeah. I'm a little subdued today. I'm going to be honest. Um Trugoy dying was uh yeah. was, a, was a bummer. Plug two. Yeah. Um Trugoy the Dove, Plug Two. Dela uh, was Dela was, was a was a seminal group for me growing up. It was one of those first groups. I don't know if we want to dig into this or not, but I mean obviously I'm I am the one who derails this podcast more often than not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It's okay. <laughs> I, I, to like growing, I was right in that kind of sweet spot of, of that like classic hip hop, hip hop era. And like, to me, De La was like the first one, the first group that showed me that, that hip hop could be something different, something nerdier, something more art house and like, and indie. And it was, I don't know that three feet high and rising is just, was an album that just played on rotation for me. And I, I mean, and so I was excited. I read about, you know, their struggles with Tommy Boy and, and getting their stuff out to streaming. And they just Which kind is of coming like March 1st. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that'll be cool. That'll be really yeah. cool. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's been a it's I'd like said. <laughs> no, it was. It, I mean, that I because I'm with you. I mean, obviously, I'm a obviously I'm a few years younger <laughs> right. than you. You can tell it in your but, voice. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, pod, or, uh, listeners might look at my beard and be like, well, you are. Um, <laughs> It's it's the twinkle in my eye is still there. It's not completely mm-hmm. faded yet. But it was a huge record for me too. I mean, it came out. What year did that come out? That I don't know. I would say I'm if I was to guess, I would say somewhere between eighty six and eighty eight. But I I, th- I feel like I was around when I started getting into hip hop. I was around ten, eleven, and it was groups like De La Soul. I was a huge Public Enemy fan. Um, Big Daddy Kane, Biz Marquee. I mean, so already some of those right, kind of more right. artsy, independent, yeah. kind of like, I, I mean, Public Enemy is different, but but Biz especially 
kind of fit in, in, in a certain way with, with day laws. Well, but I remember seeing the videos, especially me, myself and I on right. MTV yeah. and just being like, what is, they're so different than these, than, <laughs> than like the D nice video that I just watched or nice pool. Right. Very nice pool, right. Yeah. But, but again, the same thing. So it was, that was a shock and it was, and it's still, I mean, I can't, I'll, I'm really glad that, that their stuff is coming back to streaming because I can't find my cassette of De La Soul is Dead. That was another album that was a kind of a detour from no, Three Feet High and Rising, yeah. but it was still fantastic and bizarre and zany and just different. And I still listen to Three Feet High and Rising like all the time because I, you know, I had it on CD and ripped it to my hard drive so I don't have to deal with the streaming thing. Right, right, right. But, but the other stuff, like you can't, yeah, it's hard to find. You can't get and the. Um, I equate uh, Three Feet High to and De La is Dead to licensed to ill and Paul speak. Sure, sure. That kind of detour sure. and like just kind of showing you what kind of depth they had. License to ill was a little bit different because license to ill was kind of a um, not a it's a parody is the wrong term. It's kind of a piss take though. Right. Yes. It is definitely and it and it obviously was it was co-opted by Brohans and, <laughs> and Right. And and to, to me to, to be a straight laced album when it really obviously wasn't. And right. and um so it's a little bit different. But when Paul's boutique comes out and everyone's like, what the fuck is this? And if you got it, you got it. And you were like, Oh shit, these guys are fucking next level. Yeah. Um, to me like that, to show the, uh, the, the range that De La Soul had. And of course, I mean, those groups that came up that really started to, you know, I, I equate them to tribe called quest a lot too. Sure. Just like, so that was the, well, and they, out they together, all ran together. I mean, those right, guys yeah. all ran together. And one of the best, like, posse songs ever was scenario yeah i mean so but but yeah leaders of the new school uh jungle brothers busta I mean, yes all those yeah. cats were all all around the same and all doing great great i don't think de la soul gets this is gonna sound weird i don't think they get their due necessarily no, i think they I think get it, kind of like because they kind of like a they might be giants of like rap right i mean like <laughs> yeah i mean sure <laughs> i mean if, if you only look at him as de la soul uh, i mean three fight hide and rising and you don't and you haven't gone out to see their other stuff it's easy to kind of dismiss them as not not like mix a lot type novelty right it wasn't even digital underground type novelty but to this and and, and not this i mean i know the reason i say digital underground is just because when they came out the stuff that was playing on white radio was the were the novelty songs right it wasn't do um, what you like and yeah, the humpty dance right. and even though i don't know the do what you like so novelty but Right. Well, Humpty it's, Dance it's, was the big It's not one. Buttermilk Biscuits, but I'm saying. <laughs> or my posse's on Broadway. Hey, I'm not going to. I am I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I, I, yeah. I was, still, was banging for me for a yeah, long, long time. I, 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 I will still out of nowhere just go, my posse's on Broadway. Posse, posse up. up. <laughs> so I came up with like UTFO and like Dr. Ice. So I was, a, yeah, like I was a little bit, of, but then but I, we were talking about this the other day too. I also was like an 80 six when you know when novelty rap was like at its apex and you're and i was listening to the dragnet soundtrack and city of crime with fucking tom hanks and dan <laughs> right, <Hackroyd>. right. <laughs> i'm like this speaks to me it all overlap it's like the scene in the jerk when steve martin hears the fucking jazz band and he can he finally has risen the rhythm to dance out the house <laughs> this is what you know this is what the dragnet rap did for me um but then i got into like yeah through the through th those groups that were like the Donald Glover um, joke about, I went to that store and I got myself a hat. Like, so that kind of like, just very <laughs> same also, type of beat. Uh, also, no one really talks about 
how Sugar Hill Gang kind of bit off everybody else that was doing stuff at that time and then somehow yeah. got famous for it. But right. and, and still like they may they that that song has maintained its fame and I I think yeah, I just mean, because anyway. it's so easily digestible and yeah. and by especially and it's also been you know it was used in the wedding singer and it's just like a it goes on forever. Rapper's delight. Right, yeah. Sorry. I, I, <laughs> so I was I, then I from those groups kind of went into DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, kind of that, you know, the tween bubblegum rap, and then started getting and then then from there on it was just too short and Scarface and Ghetto right, Boys and right. NWA. NWA to me that that album and Express Yourself is probably just still my favorite rap song of all time. But like that album was just on rotation. I mean, and I so I grew up too. I mean, so I was again like about four or five years older than you. I you know remember when I had to go in and like try oh, to pretend like right, I was eighteen right. because that's when the the parental the lyric right. stuff came out because they didn't want white kids to be buying. Uh, you know, rap yeah, albums thanks, at that point. Gore. Yeah, Tipper Gore. Did you ever listen to Everlast, who was before House of Pain? Yeah, no, right, because he, but he, because he did stuff with Ice T. Um, right, that's what I was going to say. So I grew up like in the when, when I was like ten when break dancing was like when Breaking and Breaking Two comes out and like all of that, you know, Beat Street, and so that was like that was kind of the awakening for me and it's cause it was such, it was just everywhere. Right. It was just, I mean like in the popular culture for sure, but yeah, Everlast has a song um, on his first album and it was not the whitey scenes. I mean, this is way, way back even before house of pain when he was a straight white rapper and, and not doing like his weird, like acoustic guitar. Right. Songs. Right. 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 <laughs> but he has a, yeah, he has a line in there. It's about fuck you, pop tipper gore. Um, yeah, there was a, a, it's this definite speak out to, to, to call out to tipper gore. Yeah. His pre house of pain stuff. I got to through his kind of, you know, he, he'd have a cameo on an ice tea song. Mm-hmm. He'd, have a, he'd have a cameo on somebody else's song. And, and, and that's, that's where I, he's got a song called fuck everyone. It's a pretty good song. I'm pretty good. I mean, I mean, I, I he's, I, he wasn't one of my favorites, but it, well, I mean, it's pretty good sentiment. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's definitely the motto of this podcast. Yes, it is. Yes, Fuck it is. every one of your movies, which which is about movies, except we've just like gone. <laughs> I, I mean, I look. I'm tempted to keep going, but let's not. Let's right, talk right. about. Let's talk about some movies. We do Jason. movies here. We talk. Uh, we talk about movies. We talk about a lot of stuff, and that's fine. Just under the guise or umbrella of <laughs> cinema and in the art of film. <laughs> to call them the hippies of hip-hop. Their brand new psychedelic rap has helped this album three feet high and rising climb to the top of the charts, performing their big hit, Be Myself and I. It's De La Soul. so today we're going to be talking about lost in translation and her 
as kind of a double feature. I'm sure at some point the relationship and the disillusion of said relationship between Sofia Coppola and Spike Jones will come up. But I have to be honest, I don't care about their relationship at all. And I'm going to push back on this like Sofia and Spike break up false narrative that gets put on these two movies kind of by by everyone out there in the whatever sphere. Because look, they're 10 years apart. Yeah. And even and they were a good Six years after the divorce, I think. I mean, the divorce was. Oh, the divorce was twenty three. Yeah, so it was right after. It was right before Lost in Translation. I know it finalized in two thousand three. So maybe not. But um, no, I think it's a twee look at the whole thing. I mean, I think it's. I think it's. We want to find connections between all different types of films. But if you look at like, if you take the soundtrack off of any film and you just look at the visuals. You can find you can make and draw parallels to any film, <laughs> any well, two films. And what I, one of the things I really don't like about this comparison one. OK, yeah, they're 10 years apart. Lost in Translation was 10 years before her. And we're going to compare composition styles from these two different directors. And no one's going to say, look at Spike biting off of Sophia's style. Right. We're right. just gonna be like, oh, look how they influence each other. No, 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 no. Like, like, hang on, hang on. You, you, you're, you're comparing the elevator shots and going, oh, look, look how the influence crosses, and it doesn't cross. Like, I just that that really bugs me. I think about those two, or yeah, that that comparison. I, I definitely think it's reductive for sure, especially from a Coppola perspective. I have, and I've said this before, and I'm kind of a dick anyway, but <laughs> you know, I have a hard time completely lauding. A, and I know the term gets on a that now Nepo baby kind of for a, look, I think Coppola is a distinguished director in her own right. And I think she's proven that throughout her career. I, but I have a hard time cheering for and like cheering the underdog aspect of Lost in Translation because she comes up with a, and then maybe, and maybe I'm just, maybe it's something that I'm putting on it. No, this is interesting though. Yeah. But I have a hard time championing that, um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you were clearly born on top of the mountain and you right. had everything right. you've got, you've got a father who is one of the legends in, in, in the industry. You've got a family who is, you know, has basically, you know, fingers in every single pie that you can possibly have them in. You've got Roman Coppola that, that is available, that, that writes with Wes Anderson, who, you know, who's also helping a script doctor this. And again, this is not to detract from what Sofia Coppola brought to Lost in Translation at all. I'm just saying, like, when we watched mid-90s, the same thing happened to me too, there, too. It's like, we talk about this movie like it's this great piece of cinema. It's a good movie, but it's not some sort of, like mind-blowing accomplishment in my mind and maybe maybe again that's just one of the things that i'm putting on it but it to me like it's good it's it, i really really i think lost in translation is great i just it's one of those things i like i want to tap the brakes a little bit knowing where it came from and knowing you know the tools that she had to play with because it's not the same as someone who's coming out of nowhere and and putting this together and putting together a very similar film. Why? One hundred percent. I I agree with that one hundred percent. I I wondered if we were going to touch on the nepo baby thing. Um, it's such a weird term. <laughs> it is, it is Look, a bizarre term because both of them, in their own ways, are are nepo babies. Right? right. I mean, Spike Jones, Mr. Spiegel, comes from the Spiegel catalog family. He was not hurting privilege wise. Right. right. And, and yes, I know he got his start sort of shooting BMX stuff and shooting skateboarding and then moving into, but he knew, I mean, he had those connections kind of like baked in and, I, and I'm with you on 
on Sophia. There's a lot of stuff that she was able to do that no one else was going to be able to do. Have you have you watched High Octane? I have not. No. Do you know about this? Mm-hmm. Okay. So <laughs> back in the day, this would have been like 90. I could be wrong, but let's say 94 ish. She and Zoe Cassavetes had a TV show on Comedy Central. Oh, really? Uh, it was called High Octane. And this would have been it. It kind of looks like um, Winona Ryder's film after Ben Bites. Stiller cut it in Reality Bites. Right. That right, kind yeah. of like, you know. High octane. <laughs> but here's right. like one one episode. Sophia and Zoe learn how to drive monster trucks. So this, it's like a it's at, like a um, Paris Hilton exa- Nicole okay. Richie. Exactly, but it's 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 much smarter. And so this is where I want to give her some credit. Right? I mean, look, look. The only reason she was able to have this show was because of who she right who she was because she fucked right? up Godfather three so bad. <laughs> right, right. But but like again, no one else would have been given this opportunity. That's fine. So so she and Zoe Cassavetes are learning how to drive a monster truck. They go to monster truck school. At the same time that's happening, cut away and, and a fashion photographer who's also their friend is interviewing Carl Lagerfeld at, at a Paris runway show. So now you're getting this like high and low culture juxtaposition. Cut to that same photographer is working now with Ginny Shimudu, Shimuzu. I'm sorry. I just no. butchered Ginny Shimuzu's name. Who's a... We'll just mark it off the list of people who are never coming on the podcast. Right, now. right. She would probably just... No, I don't <laughs> think she'd even have the time to look at us. She was... I mean, she's still alive, but not actively working. She was a supermodel who was discovered while she was working as a mechanic. So we see her in her kind of milieu of being a supermodel. And then we see her fixing up a 55 Ford pickup. So again, like this mix of sort of high, low culture, it's kind of interesting, but it's also kind of like really annoying. Right. But again, this idea of no one would have been given a season to just fuck around like that because that's all they were doing was like playing with their friends. Okay. You know, fine. I mean, it was, it was sort of like the early mid nineties kind of what was going on right but also i mean like, sure you know she dropped out of school got an internship at chanel where do you think that that came from and then like had the sort of you know means and backing to start her own fashion label called milk fed which is japan only i mean so the, the nepo baby thing is real i don't uh, the the film itself i don't think of it as a kind of like i don't know i don't associate anything else with that film other than okay it's a sofia coppola film how do you I, mean? I don't put any kind of like, oh, look at this great achievement that she did coming from like, no, because she just did the version of Suicides in like, what, 99? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the same thing there, right? I, I mean, I never thought like, oh, who is this new, young, like out of nowhere, like filmmaker? So I don't, I, 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 I in no way sort of associate any kind of mountain climbing aspect with those films. I just think like, of course, she's had, she has the access and the means and I'm glad she produced something like this. Right. Right. So, like I said, the the nepotism thing is 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 real. I mean, I think about how many people don't have the opportunity, never get the opportunity, no matter how much talent they have. I mean, I have in my notes like meritocracy does not exist. <laughs> I, mean, like, um, I think I I think I was written down somewhere. It's like I don't know that I care that much, even though this does matter. Right. Right. But, right. right. Um, because I don't want to just dismiss it as like, oh, look at these actors and actresses and we're like nepotism, blah, blah, blah. But it does matter because there are people doing good things that are never going to get that same chance. I, I think it's important 
to note. I don't necessarily think it's I don't I don't even think it really informs the work itself. Right. I just think it's important to realize when we're evaluating this movie and we're because to be fair and I'll just lay I, I think this is a great movie. I mm-hmm. really I think so do I. I, I the the first 20 minutes, I think, could use a little tweaking. But I think once you start to get into the relationship of Scarlett and Bill Murray and they really start to, to perform, I think I think the quietness of it and how they how she lets that evolve and and the culmination of it all and just kind of comparing it to the, the things that she avoids that her does not. Right. Is 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 so well done. And again, we talk about I talk about this all the time about how, you know, steady of a hand. Yes, I know that she had a whole you know we talk again but i mean she had the the tools but in the virgin suicides i think it's a great movie as well i think it's really good at least i haven't gone back to look at that one in a, in a, in a high i minute. think her first three are really 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 well ac- highly accomplished but i mean the, the steadiness and the confidence and i know that comes from the script and, and having the ability to you know work with uh her brother who's you know accomplished scriptwriter and a filmmaker in his own right um really shines through and this it's it's an i mean it really is an amazing piece of work um and so that being said, you know, again, we can acknowledge it and move on. <laughs> but uh, but it, I right. do think it's, I think it's important to know because we do we so often tear down films for for you know inconsistencies or or just things that that she didn't that Sophia doesn't do in this movie. But we also don't don't acknowledge that you know that they didn't have the tools that they you know that that someone like Sophia Coppola did, does right right and 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 I don't know um, and I don't pretend to know how much help she had kind of behind the scenes either but one can imagine put she cameras grew, here and do that but she was right she so, grew up around it so yeah so let's take it from so a, she from didn't a, from an elaine may yeah. standpoint right i mean like and i know we're this is our, our diversion from elaine may for a week but the same thing where the elaine may gets onto a new leaf and she doesn't know where to point the camera or how to know does she doesn't know to shoot coverage. coverage so all of that growing up on a film set and going up on the fucking godfather sets i mean those you know, being able to see how her father, how other, you know, major directors interacted with actors and actresses that I mean, it, it's it's yeah. it's important to know. I mean, it, you know, and it had to have helped. It had to have helped. And then just knowing you know, what camera to buy, what film to use, you know, how to direct the other people around, and, you know, the DP and, and craft services and everything else you, know, you have to fucking yeah. do in these things. I don't know who produced uh, Lost Translation. Not that it really matters, but uh, her, but her DP, her cinematographer on Lost in Translation, was the same guy that was on her short film, right. Lick the Star. Yeah, um, I want to give us a rundown of. Uh, oh, go ahead. Sure. No, 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 no. Because I'll come, I'll come back to it. I just want to push back a little bit on the on the first twenty minutes. For relaxing times, make it Centauri time. Is that everything? I mean, it seemed like you said more than that. You're a movie star. Yes, movie. I should be doing movies. Yeah. You know Rat Pack? Rat, rat Pack? Rat Pack. A ring a ding ding. Mr. Harris, Mr. Kazo said me. My stocking. Lift them. What? Hey! Lip my stocking! Lip them? What? What are you doing? My husband's a photographer, so he's here working. He wasn't doing anything, so I came along. What do you do? I'm not sure yet, actually. What are you doing here? Getting paid two million dollars to endorse a whiskey. The good news is the whiskey works. 
Can you keep a secret? I'm trying to organize a prison break. <laughs> We'd have to first get out of this bar, then the city, and then the country. Are you in or are you out? I'm in. You're probably just uh, having a midlife crisis. Did you buy a Porsche? You know, I was thinking about buying a Porsche. I don't know what I'm supposed to be. You'll figure that out. The more you know who you are and what you want, the less you let things upset you. You really are having a midlife crisis, huh? Yeah. Let, let me give you a brief summary, and then I'll tell Jason why he's wrong about the first one. Finally. Minutes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right, so Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson are two Americans staying in the same Tokyo hotel. They are both lonely, but for different reasons, well, kind of similar reasons. So Murray, Bob Harris, is a middle-aged actor doing a lucrative ad campaign for Suntory Whiskey. Uh, Johansson, uh, whose character's name is Charlotte, is a recent Yale grad in philosophy whose husband is a renowned photographer on assignment. After several encounters, they develop a bond and become become close. They offer the other a kind of escape from what ails them. Um, Tensions arise when Murray sleeps with an age-appropriate jazz singer, but they quickly reconcile. As Bob is leaving, they share a sincere goodbye, but one that is ultimately unsatisfactory. On his way to the airport, Bob sees Charlotte on the street. Among the crowd, he gets out of the car, chases her down, whispers something in her ear. They share a kiss. And the Jesus and Mary chain plays this out. Great fucking soundtrack, by the way. Just so this is something that I think she is so good at is those kind of needle drops and the use of soundtrack and the use of music to to convey emotion, to convey tone, to convey mood and intimacy. I think she, I think it's one of the things that like you know you're going to get in one of her films. Right. I think Spike does a really good job at it as, as well. Um, and then Wes is the only other one that I think that really comes to mind of like that just he builds a world with with this music. Yeah. So the, the, the first 20 minutes, what I what I like about this film is that she keeps them apart for so long. She keeps us waiting for them to meet. And there is no real meet cute. This right. is and this is one thing I, I like about this movie is the kind of postmodern love story. I hate when I use <laughs> when I say like postmodern, right? I really do. But but it is it, it's unconventional. It doesn't have that sort of like meet cute, lovey dovey, like, oh my God, how romantic, how cute and adorable. They first see each other in an elevator, which she doesn't remember later on, which is a nice touch. Right. And then they keep kind of we keep seeing them in the same space. And then finally they sort of acknowledge each other. And then finally they sit down and talk. And even that first talk is yes. no great shakes of a conversation. She isn't not flirting. And he's just kind of like, eh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Trying to make banal small talk. So I really love that that she does that, that she just kind of shows them in their own element and how they're similar in those those different elements too but keeps them apart and lets that kind of just build up. Yeah, I think for me, the 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 the, the only thing that kind of pulls me out a little bit is Charlotte's childishness in the first 20 minutes for me. It like it when she's dealing with her husband, there is a she becomes much more confident when there's no stakes involved. And I, I get that that's part of the character's personality. She becomes much more confident when there's no stakes involved with Bill Murray and she can just be 
clearly she's been around famous people and is nonplussed by them. It's by the interaction when she gets with Anna Ferris and who's the Cameron Diaz stand in. And, 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 you know, Anna Ferris is, you know, it's again, if I can put it, put a slight negative slant on this, and I understand it's played for last, but it, it's almost too broad of a brush. Yeah. I mean, it's cranked up a little bit, isn't it? Yeah. I mean like the whole, Oh, you guys got to try this cleanse and, and, um, promise me, promise you'll try it. Promise <laughs> right. me you'll try it. I know there's people like that. I get, I get that that, and I'm sure she encountered that all the time, but it, it just, it, it's, it's it, the gradingness of it was a little, but I think Charlotte is so unsure of herself in her moments with her husband and then when she's with an older man who really she has no connection with at the beginning, she can kind of find herself and like and and maybe have a little bit more confidence. In that. That's that's my only minor beef in there yeah. is that, it, that, that there's a shift in tone of Charlotte and it, it takes a minute to come back to, oh, she's not starstruck by this guy. She's she knows who she who he is. And that's really about it. And she's bored, essentially. And she and and he even says this later on. She's also looking for attention. Her husband. And, and I know that that character is there for work and has to go work. I, I, I get it. But she wants attention from this guy and she just can't get it. And so there's someone who is in a way paying her attention and she's like, okay, this is great. And I don't know you and it doesn't matter. Like you said, the stakes are low. Uh, I mean, also like <laughs> Rapisi is so annoying in this. And I know, and I mean, I understand that like that I, I think he's great. Yeah. I think he's supposed to annoy me. <laughs> he's just like, I'm just like, oh my God, go away. Yeah, like go hang out with this other guy who who doesn't seem bothered by anything. And I think that's probably, I don't know, that probably gives her a little more confidence as well. Just his sort of like archetype. Yeah. I think, I think they're both embarrassed by their situation. Right. I mean, I think yeah. they both find themselves in Japan <laughs> and cause he says, you know, she's talks about how she had nothing better to do and that she wasn't doing anything. So she just came along thinking that it was going to be something different. And Bob is there. He's should be doing plays somewhere, right. but he's taking a paycheck and forgetting his kid's birthday and picking out, you know, uh, uh, swaths of, of carpet. Um, Which one's burgundy? <laughs> right. And, and yeah, on the downslope of a 25 year relationship and, 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 and so they both find something that is exciting about each other in a, in a land where they're both alienated, not only where they are located, you know, by the language and, and, uh, you know, and, but also then, you know, by their, by their situations and, and stations in life at this point. I, I, I mean, the, the, like I said, the way that this movie, Let's the quiet moments be the quiet moments. Mm. The way that this movie teeters with the platonic father-daughter relationship, but also potentially the romantic, you know, relationship as well, but never really crosses that line. And 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 also I think what's so great about this script is that in the moment you think that they would consummate their relationship, right? That's when Murray sleeps with the you know, with the lounge singer and Charlotte comes in and it's that there's this like look in her face. This like, oh, okay. I mean, this is who this, this is what this is, right? This is not, even if, even if she was not even sure, or there was never going to go there, this kind of solidified it. So they go to lunch together afterwards and they're, it's the worst lunch ever, <laughs> right? They're ribbing each other. They clearly, there's been a, a you know, a, a, a riff in their relationship, but it's not so much one that, that completely breaks it. Right. Right. That he's just like, she's like, you know, giving him a hard time for cheating on his wife and, and, you know, sleeping with his lounge singer kind of as a one night stand. And he's, and he just was like fires back about how, was there nobody else to give you attention to lavish you with attention <laughs> in that moment that you want? And it really is a biting line, but she, those characters understand each other enough where it's just like, she's not going to let that be 
a thing. She just moves directly on to like, I don't have any, I don't have any idea what we're, what we're, what I'm, what I'm getting here for lunch. <laughs> what, all the pictures the same. <laughs> and then they can have a laugh about it afterwards. I think the one thing that did, and also that this movie does really, I think is really interesting at the beginning is portrays her as this, like you get this male gaze from a female director on her and you position her as this object of desire but then you come to realize that she's not just that that she's wounded and but she also has agency and she has you know intelligence and sees through the artifice of the world that her husband is in and even probably with the world that she's in as well well she's uh, a philosophy major i mean look right. i mean <laughs> good buck in that, it's, right? it's i mean she right, i don't think there's a buck in that game she's gonna work the angles but but i think that that again plays her character is that she is I mean, you know, philosophy is sort of thinking, you know, something, finding out you're wrong, right? <laughs> thinking, you know, something, finding out you're wrong right. and repeat and repeat. And it just leads to a kind of cynicism. Don't read philosophy, kids. You'll be sad. But I want, I want to go back to this this opening scene. Right. So this 30 second shot of of her backside, of her rear end through these kind of I guess they're pink, right? These pink kind of translucent panties. And I think that this scene works on like three different levels. One, it, it it's very much a male gaze presented by a female director. And the fact that it's 36 seconds long <laughs> makes it awkward enough so that we have to kind of consider and think about what we're looking at and why we're looking at it for so long. And uh, maybe I should look away. Maybe I shouldn't. So we're implicated in this male view. We're sort of forced to consider that male view or male gaze, even if we're not all males, right? Or what this is like, what this is saying, how we are adding commentary to it. Also, this scene is reminiscent of the first time we see Bridget Bardot in Contempt, right? Where she is lying on the bed naked, but really we're just focused on, again, her backside. And so I think it's a pretty clear callback to that as well, which is interesting in itself and what Godard is maybe saying about, okay, what do you, why are we staying here, right? What are we looking at? Because that's a much longer scene even. Right. Also, I think Sofia Coppola just thought it looked pretty. Yeah. I mean, I thought, I, I think she's like, this is just a beautiful shot for beauty's sake. Well, oh, and I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of shots like that in this yeah. movie, right? I mean, there's, like I said, the quiet moments are when they're just walking through downtown Tokyo or running through, uh, you know, even when it's loud, like I said, when, even when it's just a, ma a matter of the loudness of the Japanese nightlife, there's still moments in there that just are just gorgeous to look at. And, and with nothing else other than just to say that this is like, you could go, this movie could almost be dialogue free and you'd still get the same story, right? If you listen to this with just the music, and granted that would get old after an hour and 40 minutes probably, but if you listen to this as just the music, the story comes through, right? I mean, it, it, you don't need their back and forth. The back and forth obviously enhances. I'm not, I'm not going to try to say that it should be a silent film, but I think she does such a great job of conveying these emotions with these scenes that it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it really is amazing. Well, well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, this movie is much more concerned with vibes and feelings, experiences and emotions than it is with any kind of big narrative. It has a beginning, middle and end. But structure-wise, it's really loose in that everything's kind of episodic. It's like vignettes. And the feelings kind of build up in one episode and then sort of spill into the next episode. But they're not necessarily connected plot-wise. Right. It's more, right. yeah, I mean, yeah, it's they, more like echoes through through these scenes. They go do karaoke. They go have lunch. They go do this. They And, and yeah, and then there's times when, again, they're... 
left to their own devices. You still then go see Bill Murray and his kind of evolution into acceptance of his role in this Japanese culture and why he's actually on this trip. So he ends up going on the Johnny Carson of Japan show, <laughs> which is obviously this, you know, um, bonkers, zany talk show that he's on where he doesn't understand what, you know, is being said. Um, I mean, those are some of the funniest. What I think is such a. Are you I, sure that's all he said? <laughs> that's a great. That seemed whole thing like he said so, a lot more than that. Both of those scenes where he's like, yeah, where where he's on the talk show and he's doing the commercial. And when he finally kind of like starts to get comfortable again, or and then like he says in the photo shoot where he starts to get comfortable and starts doing the uh, asking him if he wants to do different members of the Rat Pack. And, and Joey Bishop. Uh, yeah, do you want to be Joey Bishop? Um, <laughs> Which is such like a, a Murray thing to pull out to right. like Joey Bishop. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, who was the other guy? Peter. Peter Lawford. Uh, who was yes, like always yes. kind of like on the outside. <laughs> right. He was like the butt of everybody's joke. I, I I think obviously this movie gets a lot of recognition too, because this is, I mean, Murray had done Rushmore. He hadn't done Tenenbaums yet. So this is kind of the upswing, real upswing of Murray as a, um, you know, as a indie darling, serious role, kind of still playing with the toe in the comedic side of it, but like really trying to kind of pull that Oscar out of his late, late career, but doing it really, really well, never really working out for him, but doing it really, really well. He goes on to do Jarmusch's broken flowers from there. Mm -hmm. And then this is really kind of the introduction of the, of Scarlett Johansson to the world. Now she'd been in stuff. I mean, she'd been in acting forever. I mean, with Manny and Lowe and I mean, and she'd done ghost world mm -hmm. right before mm -hmm. this, but I mean, like really this would have been like, this is her big, movie where she's carrying the entire thing and she's presented kind of out of that and not to be too creepy but kind of out of her as adolescence and really becoming a young woman right i mean it's so um and because everything else she would have been like 19 or 20 in this film had to have been yeah i don't know how old she was in in ghost world um but yeah that probably would have been <laughs> speaking of ghosts yeah we are uh, but 19 or 20 is different than 17 or 18 i mean i think Obviously, because the numbers are different, <laughs> right. but I mean, in the psychological <laughs> like standpoint, I'm trying to talk about this without being like without sounding extremely creepy, right? But but to a filmmaker, right? Like Sofia right. Coppola, she's and like legally, okay. like you. That's not what I was getting at, right? But but okay, so somebody wants to be creepy, and it's not me. But it, yeah, to take it back. It, but this really was, I mean, like she had been in and 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 great in things, but this is one of the first I think we first like see her as a this is the beginning of her stardom. Yeah. And so I think that's another reason why this is gets a kind of a noteworthy um uh you know entry into indie film of the early two thousands. Anything else you wanna I don't have any other threads you gotta pull on? I well, know I, mean. like, I, I mean I think that I think that she is also Speaking of Scarja, I think she's a pretty clear stand-in for Sofia Coppola. Coppola had spent, you know, a fair amount of time in Tokyo. Cop I mean, there's the scene where they're on the bed talking, and Scarlett Johansson's like, "I didn't, I don't know what I want to do. I thought I wanted to be a writer. I thought I wanted to be a photographer." And I love this line: "Every girl goes through a photography photography phase, right? Taking and like horses, taking like like horses, <laughs> taking pictures of our feet." And I mean, same thing with with Coppola, right? She went through these phases before she figured out, oh, I have all these interests. This is kind of where they align. I like music. I like fashion. I like design. I like photography. I like story. Okay. So I think that, that that's an interesting thread. 
I I in no way I know that Rabisi has elements of Spike Jones. I mean, she has said as much. Like, yes, there are elements of him there, but it's not him. I take her at her at her word with that because this film does not in any way to me scream out, oh, this is about this is my divorce movie. This is my divorce album, right? This is not but on the tracks. This is this is or anything like that. Right. <laughs> right. It 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 seems so much more concerned with this idea of being adrift, being lost in a world that you don't quite know how to exist in, finding someone who understands that and gives you a kind of sounding board to bounce things off of to to sort of see how to how how to get through this um and to to realize it's timeless right and it doesn't it doesn't it's not tied to youth it's not tied to experience it's just tied to humanity yeah yeah i agree with you i think obviously this is her first script that she's writing and i think this is a write what you know kind of scenario so if things bled over from her real life into into this script absolutely of of course they're going to i mean look this is how we make art (laughs) right right? and 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 i'll bring this up later when we talk about jones as her and I, i begrudge no one right creating art from a divorce I've done it. <laughs> I, mean, I, I I've done that. Millions of people and millions of people, whatever. All artists have done that. That you know, of course, that's where this shit comes from. Right. That's how we make things through our from our experiences, whether they're good or bad. But like I said, I um uh, I call bullshit on the <laughs> on the influence that the two films had on each other, or influence that the divorce had on this film. And how they, yeah, I don't, relate. this I movie just, is not about divorce. This, no. this, like, like you said, this movie is yeah. about loneliness, trying to find something, trying to find a connection, trying to find yourself and knowing that it, it, you will do that several times throughout your life. Yeah. We talked about, I just, I mean, I guess just to go back to the, the other thing that I really liked was the unconventional love story. The fact that they, they never kind of consummate the, these feelings that I think are there in some way or in some form, but but it never goes there. We don't get this kind of like, you know, <laughs> sorry for the pun, but like this big bang moment. It, it, it never happens. Um, and I think that that's, that's really important for the film to be successful. Even so, the, even the kiss at the end can be seen as platonic. It, it doesn't have to be this, this moment of it's, it's not a passionate moment. It is a, it's a loving moment for sure, but right. it's not, it doesn't necessarily even mean that there's anything behind it. I mean, he, embraces her and says what he wants to say to her that he didn't say when there were other people around and maybe didn't have it in his head to say it. And that, yeah, I mean, it, it really is a, a beautiful, perfect ending. Like you said, with the Jesus version, drop me, don't need to drop. And it's just, I mean, and I think that's what speaks to this movie and its longevity and it's the people who love it. And, and yeah, I think it's, I think it's a stellar, stellar piece of work. And, and I buy everyone who's involved. Let's rip into fucking her. Mr. Theodore Twombly, welcome to the world's first artificially intelligent operating system. We'd like to ask you a few questions. Okay. Are you social or antisocial? I guess I haven't been social in a while. How would you describe your relationship with your mother? Thank you. Please wait as your operating system is initiated. Hello, I'm here. Hi. Hi. I'm Samantha. Good morning, Theodore. Good morning. You have a meeting in five minutes. You want to try getting out of bed? You're too funny. Okay, good. I'm funny. I want to 
learn everything about everything. I love the way you look at the world. Before you're ready to date. What do you mean? I saw in your emails that you'd gone through a breakup. Well, you're kind of nosy. So what was it like being married? There's something that feels so good about sharing your life with somebody. How do you share your life with somebody? How are you? I guess I've just been having fun. You really deserve that. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've been with somebody that I felt totally at ease with. I'd like to be alive in that room right now. I wish I put my arms around you. I wish I could touch you. How would you touch me? like a form of socially acceptable insanity. What does a baby computer call its father? I don't know what. Data. It's a quiet, <laughs> it's Can you feel me with you right now? I've never loved anyone the way I love you. Me too. You're going to have to do the summary because at a certain point I was writing the summary and I, and I wrote this, I don't really want to summarize this film. Do you, do you like how I give listeners kind of like an insight into my note taking process? (laughs) (laughs) Joaquin Phoenix is a sad person and he remains a sad person throughout the entirety of the movie. And he falls in love with an AI bot and then the AI bot joins the singularity and then the movie's over and it's, and it's cool and shit. Like, I don't fucking care. Either, man. I don't care. It's like, he, okay. I mean, I look, I don't, I don't either. I think there's some interesting, I think there's an interesting kernel of an idea in this film, but going back to some of the things I said about lost in translation, this is a very conventional love story. Yeah. And Sam. Well, it's unconventional, right? Because he's doing it with a robot. It's a conventional love story. It's it's not experimental or non-traditional just because it's an it's an operating system, just because it's Alexa, just because it's Siri, right? Getting down with Theodore. Also, Sam, right? The 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 OS, the OS assistant yeah. that he falls in love with, she's a manic pixie dream girl. 2013 when this film comes out i thought we'd gotten past the main pixie dream girl thing but it's that's what she is right yeah it's, she should have been voiced by no offense to zoe deschanel but she should have been voiced by zoe deschanel has point. she become like the apotheosis of the main i think she pixie has yeah. dream girl yeah i think so because mary elizabeth winston has gone on to do different things that that make her not expli- explicitly not that Right. After Ramona Flowers. Right. I I think with Zoe, it's just her music is all. And I look, I like Zoe Deschanel. I really do. I think that she's a I think we like twee things. Right. (laughs) Right. But her music's twee like new girls twee. It's all really well done twee. I'm not going to I'm not going to argue. I I, but you had the she and him record. Of course I did. Even the Christmas one. I love him Ward anyway. Yes, absolutely. And and. 
Yeah, I mean, who did she end up marrying? Was it, uh, I don't know, she married some indie rocker as well. Like, it was just another thing. And uh, Zoe Deschanel or, yeah, or, Zoe or, Deschanel. Uh, or Sophia Coppola? Because she married an indie rocker. No, Zoe, Zoe, Jones. Zoe Deschanel married an indie rocker too. And I, th- I can't remember what band it was from. But yeah, no, I think she is the embodiment. And because she really hasn't done anything that even breaks out of that mold. Like, you can say maybe all the real girls, but even then, all the real girls, she's still kind of a manic pixie dream girl in that. She's the virginal small-town girl that this Lothario is trying to get. Right. We'll, talk about, we'll talk about that later when we yes. get to our David Gordon Green episodes. Um, <laughs> stay tuned, listeners. Stay, if we haven't kept your attention now. <laughs> Aren't you really excited? David Gordon, early David Gordon Green will keep your attention. <laughs> Oh, if you love the comedic stylings of Elaine May, wait until you listen to George Washington episode. <laughs> I was just going to say, everyone's like, what? <laughs> yeah, it was like, <laughs> click. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that was fun. But yes, no, Zoe Deschanel, I think, is there. She hasn't been usurped as of yet as the, as the especially like, you know, that, that mid 30 something. Um, she kind of holds that rank. There may be younger ones that I'm not aware of, but, uh, but definitely for my age bracket, Zoe Deschanel is still the undisputed champ. Um, where were we going? I can't even remember now. What the well, oh, we I, I, I was talking about how <clears throat> oh, oh, the, OS was a, a manic, the OS yes. is a manic pixie dream girl. And, and this is just a conventional love story wrapped up in the guise of, ooh, sci-fi. I, I, I think, and it, I know people really like this movie. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to like jump in here, but no. I was shocked and appalled to find out how many best of lists this film made you know, from critics in 2013 and how many put it at number one. Look, I mean, look, I don't know here's the thing. Here's the, right. I mean, there we're, are, we're, in, there we're are, in the world today that we're, that's going to happen. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, but it's like, there are two other films that deal with divorce that, that are well, that are so much more better. I mean, before midnight came out that same year, mm-hmm. right? Um, they don't actually get divorced in that film. If anyone hasn't seen the trilogy, yet, it's okay. Asgard Farhadi's The Past also came out that year. I mean, these are superior films that don't try to do anything cute with a robot. I don't. I don't. I, I don't get it because everything that Lost in Translation doesn't do, this film does. Like, okay, so you can make an argument that the prostitution scene in Lost in Translation is a little slapsticky, where they send up and he's like, and well, and can we? Take a thread back. Slightly racist. I was going to say, yeah. You know, she she addressed this as well. Oh, did she? I mean, she? I mean, to her credit, she said, look, well, I don't know how well she addressed it, but it, she at least addressed it and owned up to it and said, you know, we we're trying to have fun with the cultural differences. And sometimes these things are funny. And and I'm not I'm not. I look looking back at it, watching it, however many years it's been. Yes. You're kind of like, maybe well, it needs so much of that, especially at the end. <clears throat> right. When he's saying, yeah. wouldn't, aren't you going to tell me to have a nice, I forget what the fucking word he says was, but he uses it again. <laughs> a nice fright. Yes. A nice Sorry, fright. Thank I, you. I, I, yeah. Um, but that, and I think when one, you can then make the argument is that's not what he wanted his last words to her to be. Right. And so that, I mean, obviously, but he didn't want his last to call it out and to acknowledge it. Yeah. I think that needed to be gone, but the ludicrousness of the sex scene scene, whatever, as we go to in the art house horseshit of us fading to black and we just hear Scarlet orgasming. I don't understand I, I understand. So where, I mean, Spike Lee, Spike Lee, 
Spike Jones <laughs> makes this film because Spike he Lee would never because he spent 20 minutes with the chat bot in 2013 and thought it was bizarre and then just kind of went on and, and wrote this. Um, and he made that, that short film I'm here before right, that, like right. 20, 2010, I think. And so, but the implications, especially in 2013, when this is set, the implications of a sentient AI that could do this, this is what pulled me out of the movie completely. I, I just couldn't like, I couldn't one, the Joaquin Phoenix thing and him being like at no point, is there no societal backlash to a, 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 a huge swath of the population engaging with this AI in a romantic basis. And we don't, we don't ever, I know this is not the point of this movie, but you can't present a topic like this and then just never address it. You, I mean, and, and it doesn't, it, you, so like I'm sitting there thinking, holy fuck, all of the things that are, should be going on in this movie, but now we're stuck on this fucking asshole. This guy who's in arrested development, who is getting divorced for a good reason. I mean, and because he has no emotional connection, he doesn't have an emotional connection with any human being. So and also he's trying to, we find out later, in a way, con controlling his wife's emotions or ex-wife's emotions. Right. R Rooney Mara blows up. It's like, you wanted to meet, you wanted me to be this like perfect little wife and I'm not fucking that. Right, right. And so all of that, none of it's really pulled apart. And we're meant to, if Joaquin Phoenix is Spike Jones. Spike Jones has a lot of self-loathing. A lot. Yeah, There's yeah. some therapy that needs to happen immediately. And he can afford it. Well, of course. Yeah. There's, a, I mean, and unlike most of the rest of the world who can't afford therapy, who really do need it as well. Sorry. There's my alien. <laughs> no, I was, I was going to come in talking about how the world is burning. And I was like, I don't necessarily think I want to like kick that hornet's nest today. Cause I'm just like, cause I'm already down about De La yeah, Soul and like, yeah. there's all kinds of like, but also, you know, I'm already thinking that. No, no, of course. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Like I, and I want to be a good, a good servant to your emotions as well. Like I want this to be a safe, happy place. I don't want it to be fucking, uh, we're, you know, just an, another one of things that, that we've got to come into and fucking feel shitty about. So, but no, I'm with you. Like <laughs> I'm fucking with you. Um, yeah. So he definitely, if this is him, which this is, this is what really kind of throws the whole, this is a response to his divorce with, with cause, cause Rooney Mara is a stand in for Sofia Coppola because they look the same. Like, well, one, a, a lot of those, a lot of people look the same. I mean, that's, and they don't look that close no. together. And if this is true, like what Spike Jones should be doing is apologizing to Sofia Coppola, like not making a movie about how shitty he is. So I don't buy any of that. And I've never, ever seen, aside from Spike saying, write what you know, I've never seen anything coming out of him. It's just all been speculation because of the Scarlett Johansson tie that this was an autobiographical or semi-autobiographical movie, semi-autobiographical movie about his experience with Sophia. I think that's complete right. horseshit. I do too. And, and, and I, I just don't buy it because again, Joaquin Phoenix's character is not sympathetic. He is, he, he's pathetic. He's pathetic throughout the entirety of the film. And, I, and again, like I said, the, the, the implications of the technology and what this world is at this moment is never touched upon. We're just stuck in this one guy's pathetic life and we don't do anything with it. The, the, the growth happens in the fucking OS. There's no human <laughs> right, growth right, There's no human growth. Like right. from nobody. Right. Right. Like Amy Adams is still like you. Amy Adams regresses. Mm -hmm. Again, we don't touch mm -hmm. upon that at all. Mm -hmm. Yes, her husband's a piece of shit who doesn't understand her and they have communication issues. If this movie is about something, I don't know what it's about. 
This is not about the dangers of technology. This is not about trying to find happiness any way that you possibly can. This is about maintaining your fucked up worldview and your fucked up mental imbalances. And that's kind of fucked. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really is. Yeah. I, and, and, and this movie tries to do... Again, what Lost in Translation does so well, the quiet moments are never fucking quiet. We're just filled with nonsense dialogue. And and the and the scenes that are how they're shot, they seem like they want to tell you something, right? The colors are very evocative of Wes Anderson and, and even Sophia's movies, especially like when you talk about Marie Antoinette and the Virgin. I mean, like, I don't feel like the the connection from a visual perspective is really there between Lost in Translation. But but if you look at Sophia's other work, I do think that you know, the mid-century mod shit and the way that he dresses and the, and the, the very kind of blockish colors and nobody wears a belt for some fucking reason. And like, she's weird. Right. And, and like, it, it all seems stylistic for stylistic sake. It all seems like music video. It seems like a fucking commercial, but it's drawn out to two hours and six minutes. And so we're sitting here having to go through this, like, like this, this relationship where, you know, it's going to end and it's going to end poorly. And we're, but we're here for the ride and we're and like, yeah, it's, I don't know, man. It, it, it's, it's exhausting. I think from a technical perspective, the film, I mean, like I, I can see where you can get caught up in it, but if you start to pull any of the threads out, this movie does not work on any, any, any level. No, I think on the, I think what you're noticing that people, they, they do get wrapped up in it. It's all surface level shit. But like you said, once you start to dig in, you're like, none of this works. None of this makes, look, it's, it's shiny. It's glossy. It's fake. It's plastic. It's, it's refined sugar, right? As soon as I eat this donut, I feel empty and awful. And that's, that's kind of what this is. It It's so where I think lost in translation is an authentic, sincere, without being sentimental film. This is the opposite. This is so inauthentic and trying to play in a kind of sentimentality that is just almost saccharine. Um, and I, I don't understand Phoenix's approach to this. I don't understand anybody's approach, really. The only the only character that seems like a real kind of character is Rooney Mara. Right. And she's right. barely in it. Everyone else is just like this. And she's kind of seen as a bad guy, right? Right. Everyone else is like, they're just, I, I'm pretty sure that there was a certain part in the movie where Matt Letcher, who plays Amy Adams, Amy Adams' husband, winks at the camera. I, I mean, <laughs> but that's like the, the whole feel of the film is just this irony, like jokey, jokey, look what we're doing. You know, the smiling and the, I don't know, just the, the whole approach to the acting was just so kind of ironic, you know, but I, trying to be since, I don't know. You know, I just screened before like this this movie and kind of tying in for the forward film club, the I just I just screened Lars and the Real Girl, and that movie does what this movie yeah that that is a man who is lost that is a man who and, and I will I'm, I'm kind of getting to the end I'll I'll jump ahead in a second but um but that movie is about a man who's in love with something artificial and there are misgivings of everyone around him and but they all buy into it because they love this person. There's nothing there's uh, Joaquin Phoenix has no real relationships. He has one friend, one friend, and that they, they kind of pity him. And and they're both basically the same person at the end. I mean, Amy Adams and Joaquin Phoenix are the same are person the same. at the end of this movie. They, they can't communicate. They can't connect with another person. They can't get their own emotions across to anyone else. Look, and that's that happens. Right. But again, this but this movie does nothing with that. Everyone else, Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt's lawyer girlfriend, the husband of Amy Adams, like you, like you said, Rooney Mara is the only one, and she's 
almost ridiculed and demonized throughout this entire yeah. movie. Yeah. It, but whereas Lars and the Real Girl, you see a whole community circle around this damaged human being and start to enjoy the interactions with the artificiality of it because they understand where it's coming from. And they understand it's a process that he has to get through, that he right. has to, to go through this to understand when he needs to find out to get through it. My only problem with Lars and the Real Girl is the ending and how once she's buried, they jump very quickly into her getting <laughs> him going back with or him coming back into the real world and like having dinner with Kelly Garner, or right. having a date with right. Kelly Garner. I think that would have been best of like it would have been I think it would have been played differently if it hadn't have been. Oh, I'm going to immediately start dating this other girl now that my fake real doll girlfriend is dead. Yeah. But but <clears throat> for the first hour and change of that movie it's beautiful it's a beautiful sentiment it never ever goes into ridiculousness and never ever it, of a topic that is 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 ridiculous it never it, it toes the line so well and it never falls off it, it, it never makes you think because the, the the movie does that for you there are people in the in the in at the parties and and in the you know basically surrogates for the audience right saying, is he you know is he having sex with this thing and <laughs> like what does it do like how anatomically correct it you know all that kind of stuff when i don't like, I don't buy, and that's the other thing too. I don't buy anything that happens with the OS. If the OS is becoming more knowing and eventually does join some sort of singularity where it is altruistic and I guess figures out that it's harming humanity more than it is, uh, you know, helping it. Well, it's it's run by Alan Watts, so. <laughs> right. At the screening, I was like, I really wanted the ending when the this conversation afterwards, I was, I was said this, I really wanted the ending to pull back as he's on the top of the roof and have a fight club esque type ending where we see like all the buildings start blowing up, you know, where like <laughs> yeah. society, like, like we have fucking Skynet becoming, you know, self-aware at this point. And Scarlett Johansson's like booming voice is like, get ready. <laughs> that would have been interesting. Like, because yeah. again, but like, I don't buy the AI evolution to just be another Joaquin Phoenix. If if you're telling me that the AI, you know, that the AI is growing and learning, then you can't tell me that it's stuck in the same sort of arrested development that Joaquin is. Right. Where I'm going to be, you know, I'm not going to be uh, in tune with my emotions, what a quote unquote emotions, or I'm not going to understand how to move forward or like I'm going to be you know, held hostage by this person who wants me to be this one particular thing. The much more interest, and again, I know we do this a lot where I was like, oh, we'll make, I would make a better movie this. But the much better movie here is to show how this AI is actually stifling Joaquin Phoenix, right? Or all of society. And if you just wanted to make it a personal movie, but we're supposed to be uplifted by this story. We're supposed to be happy that he's in love with this AI. Like, what the fuck? We're supposed to be happy that he is able to ignore all of the all of the shortcomings of his own life, his, his own physical life. And this is supposed to be some sort of great love story. Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing is that, I mean, I, <laughs> not that I know Spike Jones, but I, I believe that he, that's what he intended, right? He intended for Phoenix oh. to be a sympathetic figure. And we're like, mm -mm, not this dude. He's not it. Absolutely. And then and, and, and that too, like, Coming from Spike's other movies, this is such a huge departure. Mm -hmm. One Where the Wild Things Are is, I think, one of the most brilliant adaptations of a story ever put to film. And it is not a kid's movie. Right. And But it is, damn, there's a scene where Gandolfini's monster, like, destroys something. And then he's just, like, immediately, uh, you know, torn up about it. And he's like, I don't know why I did that. And it... and. There's just such beauty 
in that movie and an extension of the, you know, the, the book being John Malkovich, what's the other one? I can't know. Adaptation. Adaptation. Yeah. Both of the, all three of those are brilliant, brilliant films. I just, and this one, it just has all of the, it has all the paintings of a brilliant film, but it's yeah. the, the substance is 100% not there. Yeah. Like, like I said earlier, I think that the idea in this film is, is interesting, you know, being, being surrounded by people, having people that do check in on him occasionally, but choosing instead to be connected to this piece of technology. I mean, you can see those threads every day in like our, our lives now. Well, there was an article today, I don't mean to interrupt you, but there was an article today, literally today that I saw. About being? Well, no, about oh. the being, no, I saw that one too. Okay. And But there was another one about um, an, an, a, a chat bot that was basically a friendship chatbot that they removed the sexual nature. They, they, they put a, oh. they put a limit on the sexual reality okay. of the, of the chatbot and people are freaking the fuck out. Yeah. And so, I mean, like I said, there are threads to pull there. There is a story here, but it, but it's a conventional rom-com. That's what this is. Right. Right. I mean, that's, I, I keep going back to, this is a very conventional love story. And so we're not going to pull on those threads because that doesn't matter. The interesting stuff in this film doesn't matter. Right. And it's, I don't, I don't get it. I don't it, get it. This is a Nicholas Sparks movie. If, if you, well, right. No, <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, everything man going through, like, or finalizing a divorce. And okay. I, I do think like one funny line is where he's talking to the OS and, 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 and Sam is sort of starting to express like feelings. He's like, wait a minute. I just want to let you know, I don't know that I'm ready to commit to anything. <laughs> I kind of, I chuckled at that. Everything else. I was just like, whatever. Right. Do but, you, but think that that, was, do you think that was actually played for comedy though? I don't know, but I, I don't thought think it was so. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. I think that was a straight I mean, read though. No, I, and especially because the night before he had been on that date with Olivia Wilde. And, oh yeah. I completely forgot about that part. And uh, I really completely forgot about that. part. Well, she's, I don't really know what she's the women in this film. Yeah. I'm really, I mean, the depictions of Rudy Mara's emotions are problematic. I'm like, apparently, you know, Phoenix character was, couldn't handle her, her emotions. Now what those were, we're not really sure, but it kind of doesn't matter. Right. Right. And then Olivia Wilde, whatever she was doing in that scene, I mean, she was kind of interesting, but, but we were meant to sort of laugh at her and not like, well, and that's, yeah, absolutely. in a good way. And that's the, that's the, you know, supposed like event, you know, the defining event that allows him to fully commit to Samantha and start calling her his girlfriend and things like that, where, okay, well now clearly all of the dating world is fucking batshit crazy because Olivia Wilde told him that he was a creepy guy. Cause he is a creepy guy. <laughs> she right. says that I'm like, no, you're totally, yeah, you're 100% right. He's creepy throughout this whole thing. He's not sensitive. He's not vulnerable. He's fucking creepy. Right, and and to the point of, like, Rooney Mara's emotions being ignored, so are Olivia Wilde's. Right. I mean, it, it, look, you can say what you want to say about what she says, which is basically, I'm getting older and look, yes, she's been drinking. The whole point of it is like, I'm getting older and I don't want to just have a, a one night stand. One night stand, right. And like he, then he backs up like, and then oh, she's well. like, and then, yeah, then it becomes, you're meant to see her as this catalyst and also like a, a reasonable catalyst for him to go in and, and descend into the, you know, uh, <laughs> the, the, the love with the OS. And then, then right after that's when they start to have, I mean, it's just fucking, and, and like, 
the scene where like <laughs> Scarlett Johansson comes back on or Sam comes back on and is talking about how we haven't had sex. I'm just like, fuck, <laughs> like, fuck you. Like there's some interesting threads, right? I mean, like, and, and, and we haven't even really talked about like the flashback scenes. There's some really kind of cute flashback and like nice moment flashback scene. I think that would have been better served to also show some of the bad times between them. Like we don't ever see really any, I mean, we see some playful the moments. Only, the only bad scenes we get is Rooney Mara at the kitchen table, like working, looking sad, looking upset and him, like kind of sulking in the corner. I'm making a sulking motion. Right. <laughs> no one can see, right? <laughs> I just thought it was a little ridiculous the way I did me, it. Yeah, okay, I was like, oh, that's, yeah. that's what you mean that's by sulking. What you get, yeah. Where he's kind of like keeping his distance and looks concerned and looks wounded. And so, but again, like it, it, this idea that her emotions are wounding him and that's. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know. I Instead of know. going, how can we, how can we look, there's no communication in that relationship clearly. <laughs> right. So, you know, and, and you look at the poster too, where it's just like Joaquin Phoenix looking kind of goofy and it's all bast in red. Like, you know, we're just supposed to be enamored with this, <laughs> with this story. And it's just so horrific. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, look, I, if, if, However, semi-autobiographical or autobiographical this is, fine, right? I, I don't begrudge. My problem with this film is not Spike Jones using his own life to create art. I, yes, I, like, like I said, that's great. But again, trying to sort of shoehorn this connection, I think does both films a disservice, frankly. Um, it doesn't let you look at Lost in Translation the way you should, and it doesn't let you look at her with kind of the more discerning lens that you should, right? Instead, you start to put this kind of emotional attachment because somebody out there in YouTube land, right, put together these, oh, look how similar they are. And I just, again, I just think that's such a false narrative and it just, it weirdly gets under my skin. Yeah, um, yeah. I, it, it's just, it's just, I find it, totally dismissive of Sophia I do without too. acknowledging that at all. Like right. if you want to make the comparison and you want to be dismissive of Sophia, then own up to being dismissive of Sophia, or at least, I mean, acknowledge that's what you're doing. Right. But because like you said, her film comes out 10 years earlier is inarguably better than, than, than her. I don't think there's much argument about it. I, I don't, honest, I, to be honest. And, and at both places, how she's depicted, if that is truly her in her is insulting. Right. It's insulting. And like, you know, it's like the ultimate, like everything about that, how this film presents this world and, and everyone in it is all through the lens of a Joaquin Phoenix character. It's limited to, to his viewpoint where she, yeah, she was beautiful and she was great and she was artistic and we, we fell in love because we grew up to all of that is so dismissive of like her viewpoint and her perspective. And <laughs> for a film that's called Her, that's kind of fucked. Right. It really right. is. Because it, it on just looking at the title, it implies a kind of agency. It implies a kind of position of, of, of power. But really what it is, is it's, well, let me hold this one her up on a pedestal and let me sort of like push this other her away and, and in a way blame her for this kind of you know, downfall. So, yeah, it's a little it's a little fucked. Okay, I'm done. Yeah, yeah, I am too. I, I look forward to what Spike does next, as long as it's not another fucking jackass movie. You want to talk about something too that pisses me off? <laughs> Is fucking jackass forever being on a lot of top fucking lists this year? 
I know I'm saying the word fuck a lot, but but, but, but fuck it for real though. But like seriously, movie people. Like I know we don't have a lot of movies, but like I, like you can like the Jackass movies. They're not movies though. They're just extended TV. Like how is that on your best of list? Because a guy gets hit in the nuts a few times. Like, yeah, we're gonna right. put that on our, our best. I know. Of? I, 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 I found that weird too. I don't, I don't like I, again. I. Enjoy them for what they are, but don't tell me that they're the best movies of the year. Yeah. Well, but I, again, I mean, look, we all have our subjectivity. I mean, as as critics, we have what we like, what we don't like. I mean, look, people are people are openly hoping that Top Gun Maverick wins Best Picture Oscar. <laughs> I, I'll just I'll be honest and transparent. I have no plans of ever watching that film. I just don't care. And if you're going to tell me that's the epitome of the best picture, that that's the epitome of this kind of like art form in a calendar year, I, we're not going to be friends. <laughs> Can I? <laughs> not movie friends for sure. There's, there's no like, there's no outcome for this year's Oscars that's going to be, unless everything everywhere all at once wins best picture, which yeah. I, it, it won't, it right. just won't. Um, but I just, and see like, and Kate Blanchett's going to win for tar. And I, I cannot, I, I mean, think we've Michelle Yeoh's this, got a pretty good chance uh, that, I think, look, I think she's the deserved winner. I I know that I've said this before in this podcast, but I heard a critic describe Kate Blanchett's performance as aggressively competent, and I think that's that's it. Can I give you Mubi's top 50 films of 2013? I won't give you all 50. No, I'm ready. I'm number all, number one was her. Number two, Blue is the Warmest Color. Ooh, both problematic I, films. I, I was just going to... Right, right. <laughs> Number three is Wolf of Wall Street. Four is 12 Years a Slave. Five, Gravity. Six, Before Midnight. Seven, The Great Beauty. Eight, Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, nine, Nymphomaniac, Volume One. And 10, Only Lovers Left Alive. Okay. I, what, are there any other notables on the, on the list? Uh, Blue Jasmine was at 11. Um, Ida was at 15. Okay. Um, Under the Skin, another Scarlett Johansson film, was at 12. Uh, That's an interesting choice. Uh huh. Prisoners and um, Enemy by Denis Villeneuve both both made it. Uh, Snowpiercer, uh, Short Term Twelve, which is a good film. Um, Stoker, yeah. Park Chan Wook film. Um, Upstream Color. All right. Um, at twenty one. Ooh, the Nicholas Winding Riffin film. Only God forgives. Fuck you. Fuck you, movie. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I I watched that film and I was like. I was so I excited. I, I know. So, so was I after seeing drive and like the fucking theater. Oh, you seat. did? No. Oh. And, and I was like, and I took some, I wasn't, I was a friend. I, I, and I was like, Oh, I'm, he, I'm, he's using quotes here. I'm sorry. Uh, well, it was, she I took, wasn't her friend much longer. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Uh, um, yeah. That, but the, let's see the, the past is on here. Asgard Farhadi's the past, okay. which I already mentioned, yeah. um, a touch of sin, uh, Zhi uh, I'm sure I mispronounced that. Sorry. Uh, but the world's end was at number 34. Look, I like Edgar Wright and, and, and those in the Cornetto trilogy, but I don't know that the world's end. It says more about 2013. Right. Than it does. Right. Yeah. No, the world's right, end is clearly the least I mean, of those. And, and yeah. even though I do like it, I, I, I mean, I, I know I do too. I just, I think the, the, the world's end is quite but possibly the cleverest of them all, but yeah. not the best right. movie of right. them all. Right. Like it's just I, what I love about him, and, I go, and we, you know, again, I know this is a is a is a is a diversion, but I, I just love his love of movies and his like and his just care of script and yeah. like making sure every word yeah. matters. Like it's it's cool. Uh, 
I also feel like that film was where they were kind of like, okay, this has to be the last one of these three, right? Like we, we can't, <laughs> right. like we're getting sort of too kind of meta and clever and like maybe we should just yeah these, wrap it up. And the, let's, the spaghetti Western version they go. had for part four, this, this is not going to work. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, let's talk about Skinnamarink. Yeah, right. I'll let you. So here's, I'm gonna. It's it's a quick run. It's a brief rundown because there's not much plot there. Yeah, two kids, Kaylee who's six, I think, and Kevin who's four. They wake up to find their father is gone, and the windows and doors are also disappearing in the house. Um, earlier in the film, Dad is on the phone. We hear that Kevin has fallen down the stairs but doesn't need stitches. That's then the last we hear from dad. Kevin and Kaylee wake up. No one's home. They spend their time watching TV, eating cereal, kind of in a blanket fort, right, in the living room. And then weird shit starts to happen. There's an idea that mom is gone, but Kaylee doesn't want to talk about mom. This adds an interesting sort of level to, or layer to the story that never really, I mean, comes back, but doesn't, I don't quite understand how it comes back. But there's also this weird voice that starts commanding them to do things. When Kaylee doesn't do as she is told, her mouth disappears. Kevin is told to stick a knife in his eye, so he does. Um, Kevin calls 911, then the phone drops. Eventually, Kevin kind of is seen to be talking to like whatever entity is controlling this house. And he says, what's your name? What's your name? To no response. We see like a weird face and that's it. Yeah, we we flash forward 537 days or something along those lines. Right, right. So I I'm getting this. I I I kind of get it confused with the short, with Heck, um, because in Heck we get several moments where it's like two sleeps later, right? Eighteen sleeps later, fifteen hundred sleeps later, right, <laughs> right? Right. And so we get yeah we only get one of those moments in Skin of Marink. Um, this is a film directed by Kyle Edward Ball. Shot on digital, shot in the dark. Made for like 15 grand. Like 15 grand. Yeah. I think it made like 2 million, like worldwide, or maybe. Yeah, no, it's on Shutter right now. It was a sh- yeah. Shutter, like picked it up. So it's the list. And it was a, a festival, original. like yeah. Triumph, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of. I think seeing this in a theater with the crowd would have helped the, just the overall experience of watching this. Yeah. And I think obviously we, we've talked about this off mic, but this movie at an hour and 40 minutes is way overstays its welcome. There's some interesting pieces here. And of course, this is a movie that's designed to be Reddit threads, right? This is a movie that's designed to be what the fuck are we, because what, if you haven't seen Skin Marink, what Brock just described doesn't really show up on the screen, right? I mean, because, because you're seeing, well, because nothing really shows up on the screen, right? You see things in, and you see things from a kid's point of view, you know, at certain point, and then you, you see everything in the dark and, and only lit by ambient light from the television set and things like that. You see, uh, cut off viewpoints. So you don't ever see a full kid. You don't ever really see a full human being. Um, so it's just, and it's just flashes. It's just seen, and it's, it's not rapid fire, you know, it's it's not going to induce epilepsy. (laughs) Like it just didn't me. Um, it's, it's, it's just, just very kind of blue, dark moments that, that come up on the screen. Right. And then of course you get jump scares that are all just sound driven. So just things just will certainly, you know, and, and that's an hour and 40 minutes. That's a long time to live yeah. in that, in that world. Yeah. It's creepy things start to happen. There is tension. It's toys start to float up to the ceiling. There's a really the tense. The toilet disappears. The, yeah. The toilet and doors <laughs> that's disappear. That's scary. That was, it was, no, like, I know. there was just some, yeah, there's a lot of like 
the movie tries to put you in a, in a constant state of unease and it doesn't always succeed at it. The, the biggest moment of tension for me was when they're in the bedroom and they see the mom sitting on the bed and the, and the entity is telling them to look under the bed and like they look and you, that is, and I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm tense. I'm like, Oh, what the fuck's going to jump out of me now? And they look back up and I'm expecting something to be up on the bed and they look back down. I'm so that was a good scene. And then, and then the scene where you get the jump of the, eyeless mouthless face on the screen but again it's all you spend your time this is very much like a paranormal activity type movie it doesn't quite do what paranormal paranormal activity does does better you, you're you're searching the dark spots for movement you're searching the you know you're searching the entirety of this of the time you're looking for something in the in the screen and for the most part it's it never comes there's it and so it had this have been a tight 70 to 80 minutes i think the experience would have been more enjoyable and i think i'd be willing to go back and like go into a reddit thread and kind of dig you know dig into the the, the lore of it of what's just like <laughs> you're looking at me like oh, you, why are you going to red i mean yeah no i mean go into 4chan threads, <laughs> threads. Wow. it just it just gets worse <laughs> but i mean like th- this idea that that the four-year-old has fallen down the stairs and gone into a coma or he's being abused by his father and 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 and, and so there's these threads that come out the way but but this is all just conjecture, right? There's no, right. like, even the director put this together and threw it together. And, and, and I'm sure it'll be a nice entryway into the next movie that he does. Oh, but yeah. this is, but, but, but at an hour and 40, I'm not going back to this it's, and watching it again to, to try to figure out if I missed something or wanted to see something cool or like, I want to experience something in a different way. It's not, it just wasn't enjoyable. Even though I appreciate the effort, it just, this is a movie that will, I think some people will really dig it. I think if you saw it in a festival, I think if you saw it with a crowd of people and had some of those jump scares collectively, I think that might have meant some. But like watching this yeah. at home alone on Shutter, I'm just like, all right. I, yeah. I, I found myself, I found my mind wandering a lot watching yeah. this. I, I did too. And like my my level of unease was high at the beginning, and I felt it going down. And I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I was like, oh my gosh, oh okay, <laughs> oh don't look in there. Uh, all right. I mean, but like my enthusiasm for feeling uneasy started to wane right. be- because of the length. I was much more, I was much more uneasy watching the short film. Right. Yeah. Um, same. You know, because I think it was so much tighter and you knew like 25, 28 minutes. Now I think, I think that has some trippings in itself, especially at the end. Right. With the, I think we're in hell. I, right. Okay. Right. Like I don't, <laughs> right. You don't, know, here's yeah. the ribbon and bow. And but I like, think it goes, just tie I, it I think up, it goes but... so far back the other way of not explaining. Anything, right. Right. That right? it's just, and, and like, but the, oh, there's that moment. Sorry. I didn't mean to no, like no, jump, but, but one the, something else I thought was really effective in that, that short was the kid because the kids, the kid's mother disappears in this, in this film. And he's like calling out for her and she never answers. She never comes back. And we sort of see her mouthless later. But he says these things like, what does he say? I clean my room. I clean my room. Like doing good things so that she'll come out. And she doesn't. And then it's, I'm coloring on the carpet, which I love, right? right? Which is great. And then I hate you. I hate you. I thought that was I thought that was really good and how it built this like tension and and a different kind of unease. And we get none of that. And we get the like, like, I don't want to talk about mom. And we're like, 
it's almost like they spent the same amount of money on the short and the, yeah. the, the, the full length feature. And there are some creepy scenes. I mean, like the, the scene where they light the the telephone that has the face from, you know, Toy Story. Oh, yeah. That's a pretty, it's a pretty I intriguing. I at one point. Yeah, <laughs> right. That was, it was like, <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, these lo-fi horror films that we, that kind of make it past the, into, you know, make it past kind of like the horror fan into the next level of, of excitement about it. And this film just never gets there, right? For yeah. the paranormal, paranormal activity, at least there's some payoff. Even though you're watching a couple sleep, there's still enough creepiness throughout it all. <laughs> you can still put your head around the story and put yourself in it as well. I don't, like, I, I the, the kids and the danger to the kids is an interesting aspect but i don't know if it plays like i i just they could have gone more horror and more they could have just ramped up the throughout the entire movie mm-hmm. and given you at least a little bit more to hang on to rather than just a series of disconnected scenes where again that type of eye strain and that type of like just intensity trying to watch this i just found myself i'm like okay and then you would just get kind of lulled to sleep and then brought back into it by this ridiculously loud like you know speaker noise or something yeah. you know so you mentioned uh, we're all going to the World's yeah. Fair, which is a similar kind of like lo-fi movie, which to me, the, we're all going to the World's Fair, which is about a girl who um, kind of inserts herself into this uh, massive multiplayer online role-playing game. And maybe takes it a little too seriously. Right. Yeah. That, that movie didn't really work for me either. Um, but I think the thread there is easier well, to watch. I, I thought right? it was more focused too. Right. I mean, I think there's a clearly sort of like, you know, body dysphoria kind of thing going on in the, in the film too, which, which I think is, is at least gives us something to latch on to. Right. 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 But I'm, I'm with you. It wasn't fully, I'm, I'm interested to see what like both of those people do next. Yeah. Right. Just like, did you see the vast of night? A few years yes. Ago? Fucking love. Okay. It. See whatever he does next, I'm in yeah. because clearly he did not have a lot of money to make that film, but fuck it's good yeah right? and the way he builds tension with the ufos there i mean yeah it's, it's yeah i mean that but that's me is sort of like an i know it's a different kind of lo-fi than this is but that's how you do that right yeah, yeah this idea like i i i like the idea of centering a movie around a creepypasta i think that i think there's there's stories out there that are worthy of that Ugh, it, like yucky what is that right and well, <laughs> Like, I just don't, this, this, I don't, it's, it's cold and I don't, there's not enough sauce. Uh, <laughs> I asked for bucatini, not spaghetti. Right. Oh, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Wow. No, 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 no. Uh, what was I going to say? Um, I, I think that there's, there's threads there to be pulled, to be pulled. I just, you've, I, I don't know. I, I think that the money obviously factor helps these, these folks. I, like I said, I, I think. I like I am interested to know what the yeah. what the directors do next, especially we're all going to the World's Fair. I, I like but again, movies that could have been shorter and been more well received. I'm a su- I'm surprised as it's it's visually interesting, but we're all going to the World's Fair. I'm I'm surprised it got as much buzz of that as it actually did. And I think, you know, was too. you know, in a different non covid time, it may, it may not have. Yeah. But it really, I, I've just seen so many films like that that have gone nowhere that it's surprising to me that that, that it's on movie, right, at this point, I think, or at least- It's on it, HBO Max. Oh, it's on HBO Max. Okay, so, yeah, I, that was another one I saw at the Oak Cliff Film Festival, too. And like I said, it was it was interesting because I've got kids that age that are kind of like in that same, yeah. you know, mindset, but- but it, it again, like it, it touches on so many interesting aspects and doesn't quite do enough with them, I right, think, right? Right, Yeah. Let's again give the people what they really came here for, which is the end of the podcast. Uh, let's let's do some recommended if you like. 
You want right. to start? Yeah, I'll All start. Right. Um, so I did one for each film, even Skinamarink. So that's where my recommended, if you like, go. But um, so let's start off with uh, Lost in Translation, and I'm going to go with Noah Baumbach's uh, Kicking and Screaming. Okay. Uh, I mean, not s- similar stories about young people um, trying to find themselves after college. Uh, much funnier than I mean, it's, it's clearly intended to be a, a, a silly comedy. Yeah. Um, Eric Stoltz. I can't remember all the names of all the everybody because they're all like they're all Walt, uh, not Walt Whitman, but uh, oh, I mean, like, <laughs> it's, uh, what's his face? Is the guy did Metropolitan and, and um, Stillman. Stillman. Thank you. With, not, with, with Stillman. Stillman. That's kind of close, right? No, it is. It is. Um, they're, both they're both all, do a kind of barbaric y'all. Right. Yeah. So uh, Parker Posey, Eric Stoltz, and, the, and, a, and a slew of other Josh Charles and, and other um, indie films, Olivia Diabo, who mm-hmm. has the same birthday mm-hmm. as me. Um, but it's a really funny. I mean, I think it also helps. It's got a great soundtrack, but it also probably helps if you watched it right as you were of that age. Um, it may not hold up that well, but it's Noah Baumbach's first film and uh, a whole lot of fun. So, yeah, yeah that's my yeah, good one. So I did more kind of like um, overarching themes, which is what I typically do with these. Mm-hmm. So um, because you did a loss in translation, I'll give you one of those two. I did drive my car. Okay. Um, Rusuke yeah. Hamaguchi. Right. So, yeah. um, a renowned stage actor and director learns to cope with his wife's unexpected death um, when he receives an offer to direct a production of Uncle Vanya in Hiroshima, and is driven around by a young woman who's terse, right? Maybe not so open, but they develop a kind of kinship, a kind of relationship as they go through this process. It's a good one. Since- I know. <laughs> Since I hated her so much, I'm going to give you two artificial intelligence movies that are much, much better. Uh, and so I, I kind of cheated and did four, but I, I wanted to really insult her. So I'm going to say Electric Dreams, which I brought up last podcast, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. is about a love triangle between a man, a woman and his sentient computer. And I'm going to go short circuit about Johnny Five, who gets electric, nice. who's, a, who's a war robot who gets electrocuted and then just desperately tries to stay alive. Uh, falls in love with Ali Sheedy at some point, but realizes they're probably best off as just friends and then pushes her off on the god awful Steve Gutenberg and a lot of racist yeah. aspects into that movie as well. Yeah. Um, but wasn't that a, a, a plot thread in high art as well? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, she was also in love with a robot in that one. <laughs> okay, a robot Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> okay. Thing, so. um, okay, um, with the AI thing, I did well. I want to throw batteries not included in there now because you did <laughs> short circuit, but um, the real one I did was Ex Machina. Yeah, um, I mean, a pretty, a pretty comparable one, but I think. Again, a film that handles this idea much better. A film that, and I think this is a theme in Garland's films, there are powerful women in his movies. Alicia Vikander plays a a kind of what sentient AI robot who kills the men. I mean, right. essentially uses them to get what she wants and becomes kind of the, um, you know, the top of the food chain in the, in that movie. Um you know, dealing with a lot of similar issues that that this is this this young lonely programmer gets connected to this robot and gets played. Right. right? Not, not no to, manic pixie dream girls in this film. Not to go and to go back and dunk our head into this stale bowl of milk, but <laughs> or uh, creeping like, yucky. <laughs> but the the lack of a, a sinister element in her. Like, I don't understand. How is this a Spike Jones film? Like how, if you look at adaptation and you look at being John Malkovich and you look at where the wild things are, how is there no, there's, there's no teeth to this film whatsoever. No, no, 
I don't know. I just, I just don't get it. Like, and Soderbergh, like, so he was having trouble cutting that movie and he gave it to Soderbergh and Soderbergh came back in less than 24 hours and gave him a 90 minute cut. <laughs> and then so he <laughs> had the ability to go back because it was going to be like two hours and 40 minutes, oh. which next podcast we talk about how movies are getting too fucking long. Yeah. If John Wick is two hours and 49 minutes and like, come on, it's not long enough. And, and there was something else. Like there's something ridiculous, like Creed three, a lot Creed of them fucking are like three is going to be like two hours and 40 and, minutes. And so much of it is just filler too. It's stuff you can go, look, I can just take this out and, and Right. The film is better for it. There's this doesn't need to be there. If it's you, like it's like adverbs. I can remove it from a sentence and it still works. Right. If you need two hours and 40 minutes to tell your story, add 20 minutes to that story and make two fucking movies. Well, that's the thing. Like, I I like long movies. Sure. If they need to be. There you go. Like Goodfellas is a movie that I don't ever realize is almost three hours long. Well, it never stops. Right. I mean, but I mean, and I'm not saying that, I mean, Creed three and John Wick four could be fucking masterpieces. Who the fuck knows? It, the, the jury's still out. They haven't been released. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see next year's Oscars. <laughs> Those two. Uh, my last one, and it's 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 a simple one. It's for Skinnamarink, and I'm just going to go say, hey, if you really want bizarre kind of surrealist movie, just go watch Racerhead. Just watch Lady Lynch's oh, yeah. Racerhead. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the godfather of those films. I mean, probably not. The, no, Unchi and the Andalou is probably the godfather of those films. But like, <laughs> and go watch that. Yeah, that that's actually yeah. pretty good. Uh, recommended if you like. If you have never seen that, it's on YouTube. It's free. It's only 20 minutes long. It gets its point across. Um, I mean, you know, watch Skinnamarink, but don't, I mean, but I don't know. Like, <laughs> no. Fast forward a little bit. Yeah. Um, all right. My last one goes along with the themes of Lost in Translation, and that's The Lives of Others. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. By, by Florian Heckel von Donnersmark. It's a um, slept on film. It really is really good. I, and like, I cry in that movie. The Modern here in Fort Worth screened it several years ago, and I got all teary-eyed again in that film in a, in a, in a museum theater full of three other people <laughs> you and a bunch of other octogenarians like. i know i know it was twice my age um but no i mean that was a movie i saw when it first like when it first came out and then hadn't seen it again in years because i couldn't really find it um and i mean i just no i, I adore that film I, i'm not sure about the ending but right other right. than other than him buying the book i mean i just i um, yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, it's so, really good. It's really good. Um, yeah, so go watch Lives of Others. He hasn't made a decent film since. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes you I only mean, have look, one good shot. Right? Look, it's- Florian, if you're listening, I still have faith in you. And it just, you know, the other ones just didn't quite work out, right? This is what happens when you tie your tie your horse to Johnny Depp. Yeah. And Angelina Jolie. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> Try to make something for the American market. <laughs> it's like Rich Kelly for me. That he did Donnie Darko, and I was like, "Oh, this guy is gonna fucking just kill it." Yeah, it'll be so good. I want to. I want to add one more thing to Skinnamarink, and that is that people should go watch Michael Snow's Wavelength. Um, it's more of a piece of experimental kind of like video art. Um, it's on YouTube as well, and I think it's like 20, 25 minutes. But it is a stationary camera in one room. And you'll see the kind of influence. You'll see Skinnamarink how took the sounds, right? The kind of like alien sounds yeah. from like this, or how it would sort of, you know, zoom in and focus on one spot in the room until you start to, started to see something else in that spot. It's really worth you know checking out. I think along with things from you know Stan Brakhage and that ilk. So, yeah. 
Um, okay, so next time we are going to look at the screenplays of Elaine May and wrap up our May Madness series. Those screenplays will be Heaven Can Wait, uh, Primary Colors, Birdcage, and that Otto Preminger <laughs> film that I can't remember. <laughs> right. Such good friends. Such, Such good, good friends. Yeah, I was going to say someone like, I know it's not somewhere up there, someone up there likes me, but yeah, was, was, that's what I had in my head. So, <laughs> Such good so friends. we will do that. And anything Have you else? seen? All of those, or have you seen? I have seen all of them except the Preminger. Yeah, same, same, same. So uh, I guess we have our work cut out for us. Okay, and two of those are Mike Nichols films. Right, the um, last and then, two. Yeah. And then Heaven Can Wait is a Did one Beatty. Beatty. Direct, I think he yeah. directed it, right? Maybe, yeah, Beatty directed it. Yeah. And starred in. Because um, he brought her, that he was paying her back <laughs> with Ishtar, right? right. For, his, for her help on Heaven Can Wait. Which she received full full screenwriting credit for, and then kind of an uncredited work on Reds, Reds yeah. as well. Beware of Warren Beatty bearing gifts is what right. <laughs> is what I would say. Um, anything else you want to do next episode? No, we'll, I think we'll, four is probably okay. good. Yeah, let's right. let's stick with four and let's close out May with the proper attention that she deserves yeah. and and, and a, a standing um, ovation. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll applause. circle back and kind of just uh, bow our heads and and. Dream of a dream, dream of a world where there are many, many more May films. But alas, <laughs> we have the four that we have, and you know what? I'll I'll take them. I will too. I will too. Three and a half. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> right. Three, three, and a really good potential soundtrack for a fourth, and, and that never came to fruition. Three and some great ideas. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we need to circle back and become like we need to become like really just like we need to dive into the lore of Ishtar we need to really truly understand it we need to like be champions of that film just that's that it looks like 15 episodes is a good place to stop in this podcast <laughs> <laughs> we have to 15 already yeah, wow, nice. yeah, yeah. Um, okay well if that's it yeah. I mean after that little diatribe we just had uh, <laughs> stay yeah, tuned Brock and I will keep t- talking about how the world's going to burn here in the next so but we'll, we won't yeah. subject you to we that won't, you don't have to listen you you guys, if you're listening to this, you already know that, that it's all burning. Um, but regardless, thank you all for listening. And uh, keep uh, screaming. You have been listening to Why Does the Wilhelm Scream with your hosts, Brock and Jason. If you like today's episode, do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe in whatever application you use to consume podcasts these days. You can reach us by visiting whydoesthewilhelmscream.com. If you're in the DFW area, we would love to see you at a Fort Worth Film Club event. You can learn more about those and find a full schedule at fortworthfilmclub.com. And you can learn about my foundation and how we are trying to foster the next generation of film lovers at realhousefoundation.org. That's R-E-E-L housefoundation.org. Until next time, 